If you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Just read one verse you're hearing today. Acts 20 verse 28. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for just the privilege of coming together. Lord, it's wonderful to sing these songs, these praises to you. It's just the unity that we have in our church. We thank you so much for that. What an honor. What a what a joy and privilege that we have that we take for granted so often to be able to come to this building, unite together and sing praises to you and worship to you in this manner and open your word and freely preach your word and listen to your word and sit under the hearing of your word. These are all good things, Lord. And this is we recognize that all good things come from your hand we're just dependent upon you being a gracious and loving God that you are. Now, I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. Make it profitable. Help us to, uh, to be able to um, apply what we learn. Help us to understand it first and then apply these things to our own lives. And our own thinking. We recognize that sometimes our thinking goes off a little bit from Scripture. And Lord, help us to fine-tune our thinking in this area today. And then, Lord, help it to be lived out on a daily basis that we make application to our own lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have been looking um, the past couple of weeks at the doctrines of, of grace. And we have seen, first of all, that man is enslaved to sin, is what Christ says. He is held captive, if you will, to, to sin. He is unable to please God. He is in a rebellion against God. He is going his own directions. He will do his own will, his own thing, and, and he will not submit to God. Now, the thing is, is he thinks, mankind thinks that he is in control, that he is in charge of his life. And, and there's this, uh, this idea, this understanding, this perception that he has that he is in control and he's doing whatever he wants and he has free will. When we lived in Pennsylvania, we had a dog for a little bit. And that dog many times would think he is in charge. We would put a leash on that dog, put that dog in the car and take him to a park and we would walk that dog. And for the most part, we let that dog go wherever he would want to go. And he was driven by what? His smell, his sense of smell. Man, smell of this and smell of that. And he would just go all over the place and we would just let him go because it was, it was his time to run. And he, was, and he thought he was in control. Every once in a while, we'd have to pull him back. No, you're not going there. We're going in this direction. But we chose the car. We chose the park. We chose the path that we go on. Now, he was driven, he was controlled by his smell. Many times we don't recognize it, but we are enslaved to sin. We need to come to realize that. 
Now, I believe that that takes the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we are so enslaved to our own rebellion against God and enslavishness to sin that, um, that no one can follow God unless God first intervenes in his life. We are dead in our sins, the way Paul puts it. We're dead. And we cannot respond to spiritual stimuli unless God quickens us and brings us alive. Now, the second part, and we looked at this last week, that in spite of man's sinfulness, in spite of that sinfulness, God reached down and he chose. Now, he chose before the foundation of the world, but he chose some from among all the peoples of, that will ever be born uh, from our past, present, and future. And he chose out for himself a people, those who would serve God. Those people, that people group that he would set his love upon. That's what we looked at last week, that he would set his love upon. Now, what you're seeing here, the pattern that you're beginning to see, is that God has a master plan. He has a purpose and for his creation, and he had that before he started. And the Bible says he knows the beginning, or the end from the beginning. And every once in a while, we get a glimpse of that in Scripture. And this is one of these verses. But let me give you another one. Just quickly, I want you to see the, this big picture every once in a while. We need to see this. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. A couple verses. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Now Peter, he's talking to the Jews about 40 days earlier, had nailed Christ to the cross. They were in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. And here's what Peter said. Now, now he's preaching against them, preaching to them. And here's what he says. He says in verse 23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross. Now, they thought they were in control. They thought they were in charge and they put him on the cross. They called for his crucifixion. But it turns out that God had this plan from the beginning. That he knew this was, I mean, he, he had preordained this even, predetermined that this is going to happen. Now, that's a glimpse of the big picture. You see what I'm saying? Turn over to Isaiah. Isaiah, there's a, another passage in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Isaiah chapter 46 in verses 10 and 11. Isaiah gives us this big picture as well. He says this. Well, let me start at verse 9. And this is... God talking. Remember the former things, and he's he is talking through Isaiah here. Remember the former things long past. R- remember when Israel was going through their glory days and the power of God that was demonstrated there long past. For I am God, and there is none other, or there is no other. I am God, he goes on to say, and there is no one like me. Now that's holiness. That is separated from everything else. He is completely holy. There is no one like me, he says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things which had not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. This is God. He says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. His will is what is going to be done if we go back to Isaiah 14, that his will would not be even frustrated. 
No one can, no one can come up against God. And he says, I will accomplish my good pleasure in chapter 53 and verse 10. But there's one more place in the, in the New Testament that we see this picture. Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says this. Paul says this. He says, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predetermined or predestined according to his purpose who works all things out to the counsel of his will. So you get the picture that God is doing things according to his purpose, his will, his good pleasure, His master plan. In fact, God is all-powerful. God is all-wise. Nothing can thwart His master plan. It will be accomplished. We're seeing the sovereignty of God. There is no plan B. There is no reaction to man. No, uh, uh, No contingency plan because there's no reason. God had planned. Everything is going the way God had planned it. Now, we may not like that from our perspective, but that's the way it is. And when God does something, He does something intentional. He does something with purpose. He does things with purpose and by design. He does not do things haphazardly. That makes sense to us when we think about it. I mean, if you're going to build a building, what do you have? You have a blueprint. You have a master plan. Here's the way it's going to look. When God was going to create His universe, He had a master plan. Here's what we're going to do. And He is not some kind of God who is flying by the seat of His pants. No. But unfortunately, we have theologians that have emphasized the wrong thing of late. They've emphasized man's free will. As opposed to God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And frankly, in this generation, we need to elevate our understanding of God. Who He is. And in this text, this text, if you go back to Acts chapter 20, Luke does that for us. He, he just kind of pulls the curtain back just for a glimpse, just for a second, and says, look at the big picture. Look what God is doing here. This is God at work. And in this passage, Luke gives us kind of a a snapshot of this big picture. And he says that the blood of Christ with His work on the cross purchased God's chosen people. And Paul is emphasizing this because he's talking to the elders. Now he's getting ready, Paul is getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. And he knows when he goes that it's not going to be too good for him. That he's going to be put in jail and the, the Jews didn't like him and, and he knew these things. And, and he was going to be taken away. And so he had this last conversation with the church at Ephesus. And he brings all of the elders together and they just uh, he talks with them. And he says to them, be on guard for yourself and for the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, an elder to this flock. And he's saying, he said, now guard it. This is a precious thing that you have here. How precious is it, Paul? Or actually, Luke is recording these things for us. Paul is speaking. But the gist of Paul's message is this. Luke records it for us, that you are shepherds of the church of God. That's important. You feel the the weight of that, the gravitas of that. He says, the church of God, which, and he emphasizes it, which he purchased with his blood. 
blood. This is not a flippant thing, guys. What you're doing, you're in charge of of the body of Christ, the church of God. That's a sobering thing. The emphasis upon the value, the value of the church, God's people. God has chosen this people. He has chosen to set His love upon this people. And through the atoning work of Christ, He purchased this people. Now that's what we want to talk about. An atonement. An atonement. What does the Scripture say? Now these are all logical. This is just logical conclusions that we were kind of drawing here. But, but what does the Scripture say about the atonement? About about the atonement of Christ, what did Christ accomplish? And this is what I want you to see. Christ's work on the cross was designed to actually save God's chosen people, not just to provide salvation for all. Now that sounds heretical in this this day, but let me just stay with me here. Let me, just like we have to do when we're dealing with a theology, we pull our understanding from all the places of Scripture. There's all kinds of scripture that we can go to. And we'll try to limit it to the highlights here. But we want to then ask questions. And I've got three questions for you. First of all, did Christ die for sin or for people? You say, well, that's kind of a strange comparison. That's not really an equal comparison. Uh, that's, a, that's, a little bit, that's a little bit different. We wouldn't say it like that. But the question has to be asked. Did he die for people or did he die for for sin. Now, in this passage, Paul's uh, Paul's saying that he died to purchase with his blood the church, the, the church of Christ, the body of Christ, the elect, God's chosen people. Because, and that's that's the point. Because they're so valuable that he purchased them with his blood. This group of people. Now, I, I want to. I want to point this out. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. This really shouldn't be a surprise to us because we understood that when the angels came to Mary and to announce the Messiah's birth, he said, he said this, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, he says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua, Jesus, it means Savior actually, for he will save his people from their sins. Now there, there's the rub. There's the, there's the two together. Now is he saving the people or is he saving the sin? He's saving the people. He's coming to die for people. He came to actually save people. Look over at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Matthew 20 and 28. Now I put the verses on the screen there because I'll go quickly. And you can write the verses down if you, if you need to. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Each of these verses we could spend so much time on, but we can't do that for the sake of time. Matthew 20, 28 says this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom, that's dying on the cross, that's the work of the atonement on the cross, for many, many sins or many people, many people. He came for people. John chapter 10. Quickly turn over there. John chapter 10 verse 11. says this. I am the good shepherd. You know this verse. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for what? For the sheep. The sheep are people. And there's a his people. 
His sheep. And then the passage that was read to us earlier. We don't have to turn there. We know that passage. But he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for what? The church. He came to purchase people, to buy back people. To buy back people. He came to rescue. He came to save. He came to redeem people. It was a deliberate, intentional act of God. It's something that that He did, but it was people as opposed to sin. Christ died for people. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, listen, it makes, in my mind, it makes a whole lot of difference, folks. let's, Let's think about this. We're not a number. We are part of that people. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are that chosen. You are that church that Christ died for, that He shed His blood for. He chose you. Think about it. You. Put your name in there. He chose you. He died for you. He come to save you. He had you in mind when He was on the cross. His blood was shed for you to purchase your salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but in my heart and in my own mind, that makes a difference. That makes a difference. I, I wasn't, it wasn't just a, a blanket salvation that I kind of happened to buy into. No, I was part of it from the beginning. He came for me. Now, that makes all the difference, folks, all the difference in the world, the way we, we see ourselves, the way we see the world around us. We are not just a number. Christianity is not just a system that we buy into. No, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, like Peter says. And his church is precious. He died for us. His blood was shed for His church and the apostles. These elders, they had to guard the church. So that's the first question that we have to ask. We have to think about, did He die for sin? Did He die for people? He died for people. And you put yourself, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you put yourself into that place. And let me tell you, that will make all the difference in the world throughout your day. That God knew you. He had a relationship with you before the world even began. You. Number two, what did Christ's atonement accomplish for His people? If He came to to save people, what all does that include? What does that do? What does that do? Well, let's look at the nature of the atonement. What uh, did He did He come to just to provide uh, this uh, blanket salvation kind of thing, or was it intentional, deliberate, uh, providing actually saving people? There's three things that I, I think that uh, will bear that out if we look at Scripture, and there's a lot of Scripture. Verses here. Number one, Jesus Christ came to reconcile people to God. Here's us, here's God, and they were separated. And reconciliation is bringing the two together. And when it comes to the atonement, that's exactly what he accomplished with his death. Look at Romans chapter 5. You see the verses on the scripture there? Or scripture on the the PowerPoint there? Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Here's a, actually, let me, uh, let me skip down. Oh, I'll just start at eight. But God demonstrated his love for us toward us. Now, who's the us there? Toward us, those who believe in that while we were 
yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been made, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. The death of his son caused a reconciliation, the bringing us together. And at the end, verse 11, he says this, though uh, through whom we have now received a recon- the reconciliation, bringing the two together. Christ's death on the cross accomplished that for us. That's one thing that he did. You can see the same thing over in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is so good. I, I hate to... I don't have time to read all of these passages, but just let me go through this one. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16. Now, this is, this is a little bit more complicated. Verse 15 says, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man. Now, I need to explain this a little bit. The two. What's the two? The Jews and the Gentiles. They were separated. And he brought them together to one new man. That is the church that he is going to work with during this economy, during this time frame. And might reconcile them both, this one new man, all together, right, reconcile in one body to God. He's bringing the two together and he's bringing God and man together. He's reconciling them, bringing them together. I think you get the picture. Let's go on. The the point is Christ, uh, through his death, reconciled the people to God. He, He actually did that. It's not just providing something. He actually reconciled people to God. Look over. uh, Here's another one. There's the next one here. He actually justified people as well. You're in Romans. Let's just read Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. Being justified by or as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a perpetuation in his blood through faith. It was through his blood that we are, we are reconciled and that we are justified. And what does that mean? Well, let's look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, 13 says this, For he rescued us from domain of darkness, and that's kind of the big picture, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, what? The forgiveness of sin. That's justification. He presented us, because His work on the cross, His atoning work, forgave our sin. He wiped away our sin, and He put His righteousness upon us, and made us just, made us justified in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God. I'll let you read the other passages. Please do so. Good passages. Hebrews chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2. But the point here is, through His, through his death, He made us pure. He made us perfect. He justified us. We have forgiveness of sin because of the uh, work of Christ on the cross. That is the atoning work. The world doesn't have that, folks. He did that for us. 
And he actually did it. He came to do it, not just hopefully somebody will be saved by this. No, he actually came and did these things for us. Let me show you another one in Ephesians chapter 1. He actually secured the gift of the Holy Spirit. Secured the gift of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and to provide sanctification for us, to sanctify us. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, this is the Spirit's work here. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing. That is of the Holy Spirit, spiritual blessing in this heavenly realm, he says, placed in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself according to the kind intentions of His will, to the praise of His glory and His grace. That is a result of the Holy Spirit and Christ's redemptive work on the cross provided that gift of the Holy Spirit for us. Turn over to Titus. Let's just look at the Titus passage. Titus chapter 2. It's become so clear. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? That's us. He's talking about his church. Skip down to verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse verse 5 and 6. For he saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which he which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing, what? By the Holy Spirit. He provided this Holy Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit is washing us. He says, poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. That is the Holy Spirit. And he poured it about about on us, out about on us. That doesn't even sound right. You understand what I'm saying. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer Himself without blemish to God, cleansing or cleanse our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God through His blood. That's what He accomplished. Now that's something we can sink our teeth in. That is something that is, that is concrete. That has happened to us. To everyone who believes. That's the atoning work provided for us. A, a, not a potential salvation, but an actual salvation. Christ came to this earth to accomplish redemption. To redeem people. To purchase them. His work has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Peter says that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. And Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, like I've read, as that we are adopted. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, we are adopted into His family. Into His family. And it is all because of the atonement, the blood of Jesus Christ purchased those who believe in Him. Do you, do you get the picture? This isn't some just blanket, I'm going to take care of sin, 
I'm going to take care of sin. Now, this is a coming down to purchase man, to, to cause man to be justified, to cause man to be reconciled unto God, to cause man to be regenerated, to cause man to be um, adopted into the family of God and have everything pertaining to life and godliness. He bought the church of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's important that we begin to think like that and not some kind of generic salvation. Now, the obvious question is number three. We'll go through this quickly. What about all those verses that refer to a a general atonement, even a, a universal atonement? When you read Scripture, it sounds like He died for everybody, right? And everybody's going to go to heaven. That's the way the world believes. And they read Scripture and, man, they will point to every verse. Oh, He died for all of us. He took care of all of our sins. Well, let's look at this and let's talk about this for just a few minutes. The church of Jesus Christ was born out of Judaism. It was born in that context of Judaism. The Jews had a very exclusive mindset that it was the Jews or no one else. The Jews versus the world, the Gulliam, the nations. That, that was their mindset. You have to understand that mindset. And it was hard for them when they began to realize that Christ was, was moving from the Jewish nation to the Gentiles. That's dirty. That's impure. You can't do that. And so you have a lot of verses that are broad, like John chapter 1. Turn over there. John chapter 1 and verse 29. This is a hard verse. Until you understand it in its context, we cannot take verses out of context. John 1, 29. He says, In the next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Now, first of all, that sounds like a universal atonement. That sounds like he's covered everybody's sins. Nobody has to worry about sin anymore, right? It's a universal, uh, universal atonement. Everybody's sin is covered. He's taken them away, right? Well, the, the context bears that out. We know that he's not just talking about the sins of the whole world. It's not every single individual of the world. He's talking world categorically. Not just for the Jews, but for, but for the world, for, for everybody categorically. Now that's their mindset. He had to, he had to deal with that kind of mindset. Turn over to John chapter 4 and verse 42. Verse 42. And this is the context in which the early church was, they found themselves. And they had to, they had to broaden their mindset. Verse 42. And they were saying, To the woman, the Samaritan woman, it is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, it sounds like, man, he's come to save everybody. And and everybody's going to be saved, right? Well, we know better than that. In the same book... If you look over, remember this is John speaking. In chapter 10 and verse 11, he says, No, he came to, to die. He says, I am the good shepherd. And, I, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, the sheep in that context would have been the Jews. They would have thought of just the Jews, right? No, God is branching it out. 
It's the world. It's to anyone who believes and everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. So what you find in Scripture is an open invitation to everyone. Now, that, that can be hard to understand sometimes for us. We think, we, we see this universal, general kind of atonement. That Jesus took care of all the sins. We don't have to worry about that. No. We believe when we put our faith in Christ. It's only those who put their faith in Christ that are free from the guilt of sin. Now, there's another element, though. Those who Those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ, sometimes we begin to look internally as well. And the church really struggled with this. The church began to think, uh, it's just us. But, but it was broader. It's broader than that. And so the apostles are constantly pointing the church to the world to all the people, to out there. It's not just to the Jews. And so they begin to think like that. And we do the same thing today. You know, we say the the word us. And we say the word all. And we say even all, the world. But we understand it's, it's the world of those who believe. All those who believe. Now, let me show you the difference. In Romans chapter 5, go back to Romans chapter 5. You were there earlier in verse 18. I want you to see this. There's a few verses that we can we'll look at. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 says this. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That was Adam. And, and through his seed, everyone sinned. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted sanctification of life to all men. Now, if you read that verse, you begin to look at that verse and you think, man, he is saying that, that salvation has come to, to every, every individual, every person, every person. And in the context here, he's not talking about every single individual in the world. He's talking about, and we know that context, what? John three sixteen. Whoever, what? Believes. You have to believe. That, that's the context, the all, the us's, the world. That's the world of Christ. That's the world of the church. Those are, those are, this is language. This is language of the church. You say, well, why, why does he speak like that? Why, why does the, the New Testament, why does the New Testament use such language like that? And we can look at the other passages. You look and look those up. Uh, in fact, we, we do have to look up one. Hebrews chapter... Let's look at the last one. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10 says this. End of verse 9, he says this. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now think about that. We just have to think logically a little bit. Did, are there any people who died or, and are in hell? Yes. Did Christ take that death upon Himself? No, that was for those who believe, right? I, I'm sure. I mean, I have a hard time believing that Christ died for Hitler, and yet Hitler is going to spend eternity in hell paying for his sins, when Christ has already done that. 
No, Christ came to pay for the sins of those who believe. Those who are the elect. Those who are within the church. Those who God, Christ Jesus, bled for. Or why does the New Testament use such language? Let me tell you why. It's because the invitation is open to everyone. And and the authors of the New Testament, the author of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, wanted to convey that. It is open to the world. It's open to everyone. You say, well, why is that? I mean, if you came to die for uh, and save the elect, those who were his, why does he use such language? Number one, let me give you five reasons. The death of Christ was has the power to save every single person that ever existed. Therefore, the salvation should be offered to everyone. It has the power, the atonement has the power to save everyone. Does God save everyone? No. No, He doesn't. He will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. But you know what? The invitation goes out to everyone. Number two, every person that genuinely repents and exercises faith in God will be saved. Will be saved. Number three, every person that comes to Christ comes by way of invitation. Just because we are elect does not save us. We come by way of invitation. We accept that invitation. It's an open invitation to all. Number four, it is God's desire that all come to Christ. And we call upon all men to repent and exercise faith in God because why? It pleases God. It pleases God when we do. And then number six, number five is presenting the gospel to every man leaves man without excuse, doesn't it? We have an open invitation. No one can say, oh, well, I didn't have a chance. What we have here is, let's apply this, is we don't go around, we don't go around looking for an E on everybody's head. There's no elect special handshake or there's nothing like that. We don't know whom God has chosen. So we spread the gospel to everyone. To everyone. Number two, just by way of application, those who are in Christ Jesus, that He shed His blood for, will not die and go to hell. There is now no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who are outside of Christ, there is a hell. There is a hell. And that is a scary thing. And we present the gospel as to... The reality of that. Christ died for people. He died an actual death to purchase and redeem people. And the invitation is to all, to all people. And Christ's work on the cross was specifically by design to actually save God's chosen people, not just to provide salvation for them, to actually save. Now, let's begin to apply this again. We can sing with the songwriter that said, Jesus paid it, what? All. There's nothing left to be done. We, are, we have everything needed for life and godliness. We are adopted into the family because of the work of Christ on the cross. Another application is we need to come to realize, realize this. 
we need to we need to let this sink in that we are chosen that we are secure in Christ that that he is the one who has brought us bought us and that we are not our own do we realize what a privilege that is that we are not a number do we live in the reality of God's love of God's love that I am not an accident you sitting here in this seat today that's not an accident it's by God's design God has a master plan and part of that master plan is to redeem for himself a people and he actually came to die on the cross and redeem them purchase them with his blood it's what Luke says with his blood the blood of Jesus Christ the blood of Jesus Christ what a price what a price we we don't live in light of that, I'm afraid, today. We treat the salvation thing as, well, I'm just going to join this church or I'm going to join this group and I believe these things. It's not just that. We are His. He purchased us. We are His people. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, for just the cohesiveness of your word. Um, Help us to understand the amazing love that you have for us. The amazing grace. The sacrifice. the, The payment that was paid for us to redeem us. Lord, what a special, a special thought. For us today as we as we think about these things lord we, we realize we're not just a number we're not just a tag along in some religion just some church no if we have genuinely put our faith and trust in jesus christ we we realize that we were chosen before the beginning of the world before he created anything and and you chose us and then you brought us into Christ. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, may it have its work in our minds and our hearts and our lives today. May we work these things out, Lord, in a practical way that, that we understand our your love for us and for your church, how precious it is we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand. If we could do anything to help, we would love to be able to, to help you. If we can explain these things further, we'd love to do that as well. I'll be here during the week, anytime during the week. And you can see me after church today. I'll be in the back. Um, you can see our elders at any time as well. Thank you for your good attention. The Word of God is, is comprehensive. I think sometimes we put the wrong emphasis in the wrong place or the right emphasis in the wrong place or the wrong emphasis in the right place. But sometimes we just it's just a matter of seeing things a little bit differently. And I think, I think that's what we need to do. Begin to see that God has worked in our life from the beginning of time. You were chosen. You were in His mind. 
Let that sink in today. Think about those things. Father, we thank you for your grace. It's all of grace. There's no, no boasting with us. There's no room for boasting. Father, you take care of everything. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.